If you're wondering what you're listening to, it's a boxing match. No, we haven't become a sports podcast. This is relevant, I promise. Back in 2011, Anthony Joshua, who of course would go on to become the world heavyweight boxing champion, found himself in a gruelling bout against a promising young heavyweight called Tariq Abdul Haq. A year before that, Haq had wept openly as he accepted a silver medal at the Commonwealth Games. Yet, by 2015, the young athlete was dead. An all-too-common tale of youthful promise turning into personal tragedy. Except, what may surprise you, and why we're talking about him on a geopolitics podcast was that Haq died on the battlefields of Syria, fighting for ISIS and their caliphate. That, despite the fact that he was born into a Christian family on the Caribbean island of Trinidad. It sounds like a one-off crazy story, a young Afro-Caribbean convert to Islam travelling to fight and die in the Middle East. But his was far from an unusual tale in the context of his homeland of Trinidad and Tobago. So, What could possibly motivate anyone to leave a comparatively wealthy country in the Western Hemisphere for the hellhole of the Islamic State in Syria? The answer to this illustrates a much bigger story, the globalization of jihad and a threat that has grown because of the very campaign which sought to prevent it. The War on Terror. We had not invaded Iraq there would be no ISIS today. Global jihad has gone local. There's more and more vectors of exposure. Four bombs in London. Kill fewer people than this one guy with a truck in front. If the ideology is a product, why does it have so many customers? ISIS was on right. There was talk, for example, of a white jihad. Three worldwide terrorist organizations, each of which is bigger than Al-Qaeda was on 9-11. There's still this kind of fear. Eruption of violence could happen. My name is Asha Javid. I am a senior multimedia investigative journalist at the Trinidad Express newspapers in Trinidad and Tobago. I specialize in financial investigative journalism. And as part of my work into looking at how money moves between mosques and imams, then I stumbled across, you know, how people were being recruited to join ISIS and how imams were basically funding their tickets to go across to Iraq and Syria at that point in time. So that prompted an investigation into the types of people that were being recruited, the quantity of people that were recruited, and a major geopolitical issue. And these people were leaving Trinidad to go fight in a war. It started with just like talking, you know, I would go out on assignments and um, people would be like, have you noticed that they're, they're, um, people are recruiting people to go to Syria? And I, I suppose let's contextualize that. At that point in time, ISIS was on the rise in Syria. So that it was all over the news and the media. So it was constantly in our faces. What was your sort of understanding of how many people actually went to Syria from Trinidad? I went to a lot of families. I went to at least 30 mosques and I started doing the numbers myself. And from my own calculation, I would have calculated between 150 to 200 people. Some of them took children too. So I'm thinking based on my average and estimate about 300 people 
that's what I could put my figure on in terms of names and what I was able to map out myself. Was there any particular thing that was uh, common to those that made this journey? Initially, I could tell you a lot of people with criminal backgrounds were the people attracted and going to Syria. But then you had teachers leaving, you had a doctor, you had a lifeguard. I, it was quite remarkable. It was quite stunning to me as somebody who reported that people would leave to go fight a war. It's like, what, what's so attractive about going to fight in a war? One of my contacts, an imam here at the mosque, had actually put me on to a couple of the people that he knew who were in Syria. So the way I communicated with them while they were there was through an app called Telegram. So they sent me pictures of themselves, they sent me videos of what it was like in Syria at that point in time. I, they were happy. They, they felt that it was a different world, a different lifestyle. Um, nobody complained. And I don't know if that was edited, so in case their messages were intercepted in any way, but nobody complained. They were eager to show up. That's how I got pictures, that's how I knew like these are Trinidadians who probably never drove a tanker before and they were sending pictures and videos for me of them driving a tanker, you know, holding a machine gun. You know, I, I, I'm i assuming a lot of them never did that before. Um, and they were sending pictures, they were happy. Um, they sent pictures of themselves playing in the snow. Yeah, I have pictures of them um, in the snow. They would send voice notes about you know um how good it is in fact i think i still have some on my phone hold on they, those that haven't been deleted um hold on let me see let me see we're all on the edge of our seats assalamu alaikum akhi we need some mal boy akhi allah subhanahu wa ta'ala say to spend to save any cause of allah with your wealth and your personal akhi Man, so if you could organize send something it would be, only be a good for you and it will be properly well spent. You know there's only one thing you're gonna spend on. It ain't gonna spend on pampers and food and nothing because we just get everything from the state. Now, so there's only one thing you're gonna spend on, Ahi. Yeah, that's one of them. So they they were trying to get money. Um yeah, because as they say, they don't have to spend money on anything there. Yeah. You know? Yeah, but so they're, they're they're fundraising for the jihad because it's because yeah. they're yeah. saying like we've got everything we need, so you just have to help Send. us. Yeah, wow. Trinidad and Tobago is very close to my heart. I was actually the UK High Commissioner. That's a fancy British term for ambassador. There for several years, about a decade ago. Now, most people think of Caribbean islands and they think of beach holidays, cocktails, maybe cricket tours. But there is another side to this story. The Caribbean islands have some of the world's highest murder rates. Gang violence, inequality and the lingering legacy of colonialism and slavery are never far from the surface. And into this mix comes an ideology of violent resistance to Western values driven by a tendentious interpretation of Islam. Jihad. This isn't to get into debates about interpretations of the Quran or specific religious teachings. It's about how violent Islamist militancy has turned into a rootless war cry that can have an appeal anywhere from Australia to Trinidad via the deserts of Syria. 
Jihad has become a global product, and it adapts to its surroundings with different brands that suit a local audience. Think of it like fast food. You can buy a burger anywhere in the world. Sometimes it's from a global brand. Sometimes it's a local one. It's still a burger. This has very little to do with the religious content of the idea, and everything to do with how ideas and concepts can gain traction. I'm Arthur Snell. Welcome to Doomsday Watch, and this is McJihad: How Terror Became a Global Franchise. New Yorkers standing in silence this morning. Twice they paused, 17 minutes apart, at 8:46 and 9:03, the moments six months ago when America reeled and the world changed. And shortly after, during the first day, I realized that your loved ones gave us the example on which we would build. I realized that we had won the war against terrorism on that first day. Let's not forget how this began. That late summer day in September 2001, when Al Qaeda operatives killed thousands in New York and Washington, it was inevitable that America would respond militarily. But that was, of course, exactly what the terrorists wanted—to start a war. And in the immediate aftermath, the American response seemed highly effective. Within three months, Al Qaeda had been wiped off the map of Afghanistan, and their Taliban protectors were out of power. There would never again be a major terror attack abroad that was planned and coordinated from Afghanistan. I think the fear for us is that this war on terrorism has unleashed a polarization of the world, which, if it takes place outside a framework of multilateral agreement and effort to seek consensus and of rules, you know, really does risk. Setting one part of the world against another in a way that certainly would have the consequences of turning us into a league of nations, but also causing humanity huge distress and hardship in the decades ahead. Twenty years later, violent militant jihad is a global movement. Terror cells are springing up thousands of miles away from their spiritual bases in Africa, in Europe, and even in the Caribbean. Two decades on. What have we achieved in the war on terror? Nothing that drove the attack in 9/11 has been resolved. But perhaps most importantly, if we had not invaded Iraq, there would be no ISIS today. You've heard from David Kilcullen in our episodes on America and China. He's a big strategic thinker, but he made his name as a counterterrorism expert. At one point, being the key advisor to the U.S. government on the issue. In my view, the most severe. Strategic misjudgment、um, anywhere on the planet since Hitler's decision to invade Russia in 1941 was the U.S. decision to invade Iraq in 2003. It completely undermined the credibility of the U.S. effort against、uh, terrorism more broadly. It also created the dynamic of overstretch in Iraq that made the U.S. unable to respond when things went bad in Afghanistan and elsewhere. Paradoxically, there would probably also be no ISIS if we hadn't withdrawn precipitately from Iraq in 2011. So we made one really severe error of going in there in 2003. We compounded that error by leaving in 2011 and leaving the fragile Iraqi government without support, and then、um, only re-engaged when Islamic State came bursting out of Syria and took over almost two thirds of the country of Iraq. 
it's quite possible that that error is irrecoverable, right? In other words, there's nothing we can actually do about it. We just have to live with the, the consequences. You know, there's now no longer one or two, but three worldwide terrorist organizations uh, that are each of which is bigger than Al Qaeda was on 9 11. In 2021, we have a country, Afghanistan, controlled by a terrorist organization that's the Taliban. We have ISIS active in zones across the world from Europe to East Africa to the Middle East, and we have Boko Haram, less well known but responsible for tens of thousands of deaths across Western Central Africa. And there are many more, different brands, different names, but still operating the violent jihad model. Now, we were told that when the most wanted men of Saddam's regime were captured, resistance would just crumble away. The trouble is there's another pack of cards the Americans... We need to talk about Abu Musab al-Zarqawi. Except one, this man, Abu al-Zarqawi. Not an Iraqi, but a Jordanian. He's claimed 25 bombings in Iraq... And today the coalition said he wrote a document for al-Qaeda that they describe as a blueprint for a sectarian war. When I was in Iraq during the major insurgency in the aftermath of the invasion, he was the one you feared, not bin Laden. On the days when your work took you out into Baghdad's red zone, the worst thing that could happen was being captured by one of Zarqawi's cells, in which case the fate awaiting you would be torture followed by a televised beheading. Remember Ken Bigley? Zarqawi a small-town Jordanian thug, was the leader of Iraq's branch of al-Qaeda, but he broke away, setting up his own brand, which would ultimately become the Islamic State, benefiting from an infusion of Iraqi jihadists, including Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, who were released from American detention. Zarqawi took the al-Qaeda worldview and adapted it with an agenda of extreme violence, including against Muslim civilians, with the specific objective of provoking a civil war in Iraq. He was the one doing the kidnappings, the head choppings, and carrying out mass casualty bombings of targets previously considered off-limits, such as the Red Cross and the UN. In fact, he was so extreme that al-Qaeda tried to rein him in, telling him to tone down his attacks on fellow Muslims. In addition to extreme violence, the second legacy of Zarqawi was his desire, from the outset, to create a caliphate, a separate state within the territory of Iraq and Syria, governed by his twisted worldview. And that was what outlived him. The caliphate vision survived Zarqawi under al-Baghdadi. In fact, it grew far bigger than anything Zarqawi could have dreamed of. Here's Professor Shiraz Maha, from the Centre for the Study of Radicalization at London University on the significance of Islamic State. Yeah, the Islamic State ultimately always saw itself as a state, and it's important to, to recognise that because that really defined their behaviour early on and their attitude early on. It's not a great sort of ideological movement, uh, Islamic State. It was, that's what made it really interesting. It didn't develop in, in, in uh, sophisticated theological terms a new kind of model that went... Uh, far beyond what Al-Qaeda had been saying. But what Islamic State was very good at doing was, was two things. The first was to essentially uh, establish um, authority for themselves by a praxis. So they did take over large chunks of territory and for a while broke parts of the border between Syria and Iraq and uh, maintained their own borders and, and had territorial integrity within their state and, and, and so on and so forth. And secondly, they took this view that, you know, who are you to tell us uh, anything else? So when they um, moved into the Syrian conflict, which 
you know, they were relatively latecomers. They said, look, um, you know, uh, um, we're in charge and, you know, we're taking over. And of course, the other jihadist groups started to fight them. And so Al-Qaeda under uh, bin Laden's successor, Ayman Zawahiri, said, look, I'm going to intervene and I'll tell you what to do. And Islamic State uh, rebuked him, which, you know, these groups don't tend to rebuke each other too much. Uh, Islamic State said, no, listen, you know, who are you to tell us? Think back to that clip Asher Javid played us of the Trinidadian jihadist, happy with his new life in a war zone on the other side of the world, no one to tell him what to do, chasing the purity of a strict Islamic state. But surely, you might think, the caliphate was a passing dream. By the end of 2017, it had been all but wiped from the map by a coalition of Western forces and Syrian Kurds. There's probably two ways to look at this question. The first thing is, how do we conceive of Islamic State? What, you know, what is this thing? And I think in that context, you can say it's, it's a three-dimensional object, right? It, it sort of occupied three different states all at once. So it was a proto-state. It did govern. It did ha- have territory. It was a country. It was also an insurgency, and it was also a terrorist movement. And I suppose the way you view it kind of depends on your physical perspective. So if you and I lived in Raqqa or Mosul in 2015 or 14, it was our government. It was the uh, prevailing authority of the day. If we live in Baghdad or Damascus or, you know, more generally in Syria and Iraq, it's an insurgency. And living as we do in the West, in the UK, if we were to ever encounter the group, uh, you know, it would be in the context of a terrorist attack, right? Someone doing something in the group's name. Uh, and, and we sort of are unfortunate enough to, to be there at that moment. So in, in that sense, you can see that the military kinetic campaign against Islamic State only really addresses one aspect of the group's identity, which is the proto-state element. It remains an insurgency on the ground in Syria and Iraq, albeit one that's you know, heavily wounded. And it remains a terrorist organization that can continue to inspire people and can continue to motivate people uh, to conduct uh, atrocities in its name. In fact, Christina Dick actually said that the UK should be on alert for a potential terrorist attack. Now, you'd expect the chief of London's Metropolitan Police to be cautious with her warnings. But with the caliphate wiped out, bin Laden dead, Islamic State and al-Qaeda both shadows of their former selves, hasn't the counter-terrorism job been done? Can anyone repeat the complexity of the 9-11 attacks? Here's Shiraz. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting question. It it leads itself to lots of um, uh, sort of ways to interrogate it, really. And you know, now's as good a time as any, right? Two decades uh, into the war on terror, um, there's been a lot of stock taking of, of what's been happening. And so you mentioned September the 11th as being a relatively sophisticated plot. It's obviously quite a large conspiracy. You have 19 people uh, involved with it. They do require a degree of technical sophistication in terms of learning how to fly and doing all these kinds of things. And then, of course, the Western intelligence capacity against Al-Qaeda in the years after, becomes pretty good. And they recognize that, look, you know, lots of guys are trying these kinds of sophisticated plots. Of course, we have the transatlantic uh, liquid bomb plot, which was uh, being orchestrated and controlled from Pakistan, but was playing out here on the streets of the UK. Uh, And for people who aren't, you know, uh, that familiar with it, I mean, that that was the idea of smuggling explosives onto planes in in liquid bottles. And and that's why you can't take uh, liquids onto aircraft to this day. And so what Al-Qaeda realized was, look, um, you know, uh, Western intelligence is um, becoming 
pretty good at unpicking those networks, at sort of looking at signals and, and realizing, you know, what's happening. And so there was a conscious effort from Al-Qaeda in Yemen uh, under their sort of guise of Anwar al-Awlaki, an American Yemeni uh, theorist who had really risen the ranks of the organization. And of course, because he spoke fluent English and had lived in the United States, that meant he could relate to Western audiences. And so he said to Muslims in the West who were sympathetic to the group, said, look, stop trying to pull off these really uh, elaborate conspiracies, right? The, the, the chances are you're going to get caught. More likely than not, you, you'll fail and then you're going to spend you know, the rest of your life in jail. So do simpler attacks, um, dumb down terrorism, essentially, and you need a kind of proof of concept which inspires others. And, and I think that really happened with the Nice uh, truck attack, um, which, of course, took place on Bastille Day. And what was really significant about that, if you think of it in terms of a terrorist event, just by hiring a truck, this guy killed more people than uh, were killed in London on the, in the 7-7 attacks in 2005. So if you imagine four bombs going off in London, kill fewer people than this one guy with a truck. And I think that 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 signaled something to a lot of people that, look, you don't need to be sort of engaging in, in all these sorts of really elaborate plans and you don't need to be downloading bomb-making manuals off the internet and so on. Just get yourself a car. And, and of course, we saw a, a spike in vehicle attacks in places like Germany, in the UK, of course, in London, two attacks uh, over three months, uh, one at Parliament and the other uh, down at Borough Market. So, um, as it were, this individual in Nice had, had, had proven to the broader jihadi movement that, look, you can, uh, you can do things relatively easily. An incident on London Bridge. Uh, we were in the, we were in the we restaurant, were in the restaurant we're in this spot where, with knives and these types of things, it's clearly not going to be as dramatic as, as a massive bomb going off. It's, so, so, you know, we have that advantage. But of course, the, the, the flip side to it is that these are much harder to, to spot and to stop as a result of the fact that they are so primitive in their execution. The broader point, if you imagine after 9-11, you know, George Bush comes out and he talks about this group Al-Qaeda and it's the first time you know, most of the world is hearing of, of this group and of these individuals. But essentially you've got this one kind of organization that you're going after and there's this guy called bin laden who's sitting at the top of that tree and you know he's the guy you ultimately want to find and uh, the united states goes after them but what you've seen in the intervening years is a, a diversification and a splintering uh, really of of that threat you have more movements now than ever before that are so broadly aligned to that salafi jihadi ideology groups like al-shabaab uh, Islamic State, of course, and, and most dramatically, but other localized groups, Ansar Deen operating in the Sahel, Ansar Sharia, and others uh, in, in Northern Africa. That's where you're really seeing a kind of evolution in the way these groups are operating. There's been a kind of globalization, as it were, where, where this global jihad has gone local. And what these groups have realized is that if you conduct your campaign and limit it to, to the local regions in which you're operating, you're far more likely to succeed because I think they recognize that in conventional military terms, they, they're not going to defeat the West, right? The United States is not about to, to crumble. Uh, Islamic State and its soldiers aren't about to march through Rome 
or uh, you know occupy 10 Downing Street despite you know whatever they might say but if you can keep it localized as the Taliban are learning in, in Afghanistan and you don't provoke the beast you don't have your country becoming a launch pad for external operations then um, there's obviously an appetite to, to not engage anymore in these countries is an appetite to say, look, leave them to it. As I say, the, the broader movement you, you see is, is becoming more intelligent and smarter in terms of the way it's trying to hold territory and to, to sort of govern essentially in, in ungoverned spaces. Islamic State's sinister genius is to go for the low-tech approach which is almost undetectable. Hiring a van is not a criminal act or even an indicator of one. But these shocks still don't come as a bolt from the blue. All too often, people who carry out these attacks have had some past association with the authorities. So are we missing something? I'm Professor Noemi Buena. I'm a professor of crime science and counter-extremism at University College London. And like many of my colleagues, are, I'm less interested in ideology. I'm more interested in the effect of the environment on this, this process that we call radicalization. Noemi has reached the conclusion that we can't simply look out for warning signs in individuals' behaviour. If you think of the lawyer making a good living on the sun-drenched Isle of Trinidad, giving it all up for jihad in Syria, you can see what she's talking about. When you think about behaviour, behaviour is the product of people in particular situations, and we are obsessed with explaining the people, and we don't spend enough time understanding the situations. And so a problem that was presented early on was um, what we call the problem of specificity, or I believe... Mark Sageman, who's a fairly well-known scholar in our field, uh, called the problem of specificity. So if you think about the underlying factors that people think uh, contribute to radicalization, you know, the psychological things, the life experiences, very many people have those characteristics, right? Many, very many people have grievances against the government. Very many people have had, you know, experiences of discrimination and so on and so forth. All those those things that you hear about uh, a lot, right? Um, and yet only out of those millions, only a few of those people will get involved. So I take the uh, the analogy of the the canary in the mine. So if you if you want to think about susceptibility, it's kind of a continuum, right? Uh, from one to a hundred, you're anywhere. Everybody is somewhere on this continuum of susceptibility, uh, but some people are closer to one hundred, and those are what I call the canaries. And so I think in terms of assessing risk, we spend way too much time trying to detect who the canaries are. Um, and there are very many, so we never manage to really narrow it down to the ones that are going to drop because we don't pay enough attention to understanding the mine. And so my whole approach is about, okay, if you control the mine, if you can make it less toxic, then you never have to worry really about finding out who the canaries are uh, because they'll never be exposed to the gas. I said we needed to talk about who is becoming a jihadist. But Noemi thinks who is the wrong question. Me, I'm always asking myself, um, trying to come at it from a different angle. And so I ask myself, where do people radicalize? And it sounds a bit dumb to say it like that, but it's a social activity and it 
it happens someplace. You know, every so often you hear about a terrorist cell or a terrorist network and, and you trace back their history and you realize they met while playing football somewhere, right? Uh, or you realize that they met uh, during a study group at university or and so on and so forth. So you realize that place um, is what creates the opportunity for the susceptible people to, to be exposed to the radicalizing influence. It has to happen somewhere. And when you study all those places where it happens, you realize they have some features in common to make radicalization possible. So first, in that place, there has to be discussion or media or someone says, oh, by the way, in those circumstances, at least terrorism might not be a bad idea. At the same time, you also have features in that place uh, that allow people to get... Uh, attached to each other, almost in the same way that friends get attached to each other. You know, changing your beliefs is usually being influenced by your best friends uh, into believing what they believe. This is this is mostly what happens. This is what you you learn studying religious conversion. The other feature that those places are is that social control, what we call social control in them, doesn't work for whatever reason. So informal social control in the sense that, you know, you have people like other users of that place, either they're not aware of what's going on or they see what's going on, but for whatever reason, they don't act on it, right? They don't intervene to stop the conversation. They don't pick up the phone to call the police and say, I heard something that is a bit concerning. Uh, they It doesn't work. Um, and formal social control doesn't work either you know, there's no police around, there's no CCTV cameras, there, there's no surveillance and so forth. So when you study all the places, so I'm, I'm making a long story short, but when you study all the places where radicalization does happen, be they virtual places or non-virtual places, um, they all have certain of those features uh, in common. I guess a lot of that is, I mean, I speak to someone who used to work in this field, you know, we... we... The, the middle-aged, privileged, mostly white men doing this work have very little knowledge of which diner or which football club or boxing thing or whatever. You know, we're just, we're, we're always a long way from the coalface. Yeah. Well, I mean, this, this, this French woman isn't particularly <laughs> exposed to those sorts of environments either, but through the research I tried to, I, I tried to get a, a sense of where things are, are happening. It's just that... We're living in an environment where there's there's more and more uh, vectors of exposure. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, why might you be susceptible to radicalization? Is because you you know you followed a set of rules all your life, and and then well, suddenly it doesn't work for you. You know, it's like when you've had the blue screen of deaths too many times and you go from being PC to Mac or vice versa. Right. You know, you know yeah. the, 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 the operating system isn't working for you anymore. It's not delivering. So now you're ready. If you come across a better one or someone convinces you that they have a better one, now you're ready to take it on. The problem is that we used to have you know, like we have Mac and PC and Linux maybe, we and we have two or three main operating systems uh but now with with the and we used to have you know communism uh capitalism and that was about it um and let's say jihadism more recently but now operating system we have as many people on the internet have their own idea about what what the rules uh are supposed to be and so we get to a state of what i call moral fragmentation 
where even if we feel like changing systems, we don't even know what new one we should pick anymore. Yeah. Uh, and, and some of my colleagues have come up with this expression that they call salad bar ideology, which oh, is... Oh, right. Yeah, where you, you dip into... Exactly. Yeah. And more and more you see that. So it's not not anymore about being ideologically consistent. It's the extreme individualism of our societies now applied to to the extremist field. And uh, and I'm a big big believer in thinking. You know, the broad trends that we see in society, we see the same one in 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 the extremism sphere. There's no reason. Those are not different kinds of people living in, on another planet. They are going the same. The same things will be reflected there. In a globalized world, or to use Noemi's analogy, inside the mine, the environment is toxic. And until we can stabilize our fractured communities, there will be those who fall susceptible to radicalization. And that's not just a jihadism, of course. There are other violent ideologies feeding off and reflecting the jihad movement, as well as being driven by their own pathologies. There are those that would risk everything to be in a militant extremist group. And behind these meetings in universities and football teams, there are some dark forces at work. Earlier in the series, we spoke to Iyad al-Baghdadi about Saudi Arabia. Iyad went through a radicalized phase in spite of coming from a comfortable background and having a good job in the tech sector. This is his recollection of the experience. I mean, I remember the particular night because it was after the revelations about the Abu Ghraib uh, prison abuse scandal. Uh, and something broke. I mean, something basically, you know, you, when you're when you're denied justice in, in a certain way where, you know, you, f- you not only do you feel dehumanized because, you know, in a sense, you're identifying with the victims, but you're also feeling that there is no way to fight and there's nobody who's centering you. I, I mean, it's it's a very ugly place when you give up on the idea of justice. That's where you actually go towards nihilism, the idea that nothing matters and if nothing matters, then you might as well just cause as much pain as possible. Hindsight is twenty twenty, of course. And, uh, you know, looking back at the much younger uh, uh, version of me, I would say, yeah, I mean, he was going through his own his own thing. He's, he's going through a, his own belonging crisis because he lived in a country that, uh, you know, I lived in the United Arab Emirates, a country which I felt a sense of belonging to, but it didn't reciprocate. And I think these kind of personal existential questions are far more fundamental than... Uh, grievances that you can touch or feel so it's like it's really these you know these emotional psychological scars which are uh, really difficult to to grapple with and i think a lot of radicalization happens there but mostly i would say i mean the one thing the one takeaway i would say from those few years in which i was kind of a, a believer in that ideology i was never a militant and i was never act an active member of anything but i believed in the ideology for you know for maybe two or three years um, was really this appreciation that the ideology is different from its appeal. In other words, ideologies are always going to exist. The more interesting question is, if we take uh, ideologies to be answers, then what is it that makes people seek uh, this question? Let's say that we're, 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 we're using kind of a marketplace uh, metaphor. If this is the product, if the ideology is a product, why does it have so many customers? This is the question. These movements are not just terrorist movements. There's also populist movements. They also speak about, you know, we're here to protect you. We're here to defend you. You have to join us because we're the good guys. 
uh, and we're the ones who are fighting for for your rights and you're you know that, that's that's kind of like how they how they win recruits really you know the pull factors are not really theological the pull factors are political in nature and then you know people kind of go in for political reasons and then they kind of try to align themselves with the ideology by adopting it but really the pull factor is not the ideology itself for the most part it's it's the, it's what it does it's the real the real the real world effects of it when we're dealing with terrorism particularly the hideous antics of the islamic state we tend to want to disassociate ourselves from those people regard them as an evil race apart like the orcs in the lord of the rings but the recruits to the islamic state are normal people with aspects to their lives little different to people we all know and interact with regularly, which might not be surprising now that we're seeing so many different types of radicalism in addition to jihadism. I keep going back to this point that ideologies, uh, the ideology is different from its appeal. I mean, we've see, we, we kind of see this in the American context where we have a different kind of radicalization movement there you know, white supremacist radicalization is absolutely follows the same kind of pattern and it is also a lethal threat and we might actually see it uh, explode in uh, in seriousness over the next decade depending upon political events over there. But we see how the ideology is not really that. I mean, in the lack of a coherent ideology, you had something of a conspiracy theory, QAnon, which morphed into a sort of ideology. It's because the political outcomes are really the essence of it. The ideology is simply a way, a scaffold, to hold up these political goals. So where does that lead us? We've heard how the shock of 9-11, the West's desperate focus on the war on terror, its failed forever wars, merely exacerbated a problem, even leading to Islamic State and the global jihadist wave. Then we heard how that threat diverted the West from rising dragons, that was the term that David Kilcullen used to describe a resurgent China and Russia and weakened our democracies. Trump, Brexit, you name it, the schisms keep appearing. This neo-populist era of enduring global disorder, combined with the social media world, seems to be feeding a cycle of extremism on all sides. We can see this tragic mirroring on British soil. Two members of parliament murdered in the past five years, the Labour MP Joe Cox by a man shouting Britain first as he attacked. The Conservative David Amos killed by an individual with links to Islamist extremism. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. Shiraz Mar. You know, without getting too esoteric on it, I think the frenetic and febrile nature of what we saw happening in Syria and Iraq in 2015, it created fear, right? And, and to the extent that it created fear, we couldn't really process what was happening out there. There was a much more palpable sense of uh, vulnerability in Europe, uh, and I think to an extent in North America as well. That didn't even happen after 9-11, but, but I remember going to the Netherlands just shortly after the Paris attacks in, in November, and people were on edge, and people were thinking about terrorism uh, a lot more than, than they ever had done. Um, and it, it, was, it was sort of in the background of, of European daily life. And so to the extent that you know, we're living through a bit of an era of populism and the return of strong men, as has happened into war Europe uh, in the 20th century. These strong men are, in essence, pushing a message which is to counteract that fear. We don't like uncertainty and say, look, we can take back control, right? These narratives. And I think you were seeing that wave happening in Europe and North America, which, as you mentioned, Trump 
was very good at tapping into. And I don't want to reduce all of this to saying it's a reaction to what happened there, but clearly that background noise and the hum uh, of, of, of chaos uh, coming out of the Middle East did, I think, help fuel this, this broader sense of political po uh, polarization that took root. We are now seeing, um, as a result of that, people far more stratified than ever before, people adopting more extreme positions. One of the projects that my center um, is doing right now, we're looking at how the far right has actually been learning from jihadist organizations. There is talk, for example, of a white jihad um, and, and sort of organizing, mobilizing in militant sense uh, for white nationalism, but, but co-opting the language of jihad. Similarly, if you look at Charlottesville vehicle attack, again, you know, originates with the jihadist movement but is adopted elsewhere. So the malevolent creativity of jihadist movements is being watched. Malignant actors will look to one another to see what they're doing. We're in this um, difficult phase of, um, as I say, heightened populism, heightened uh, polarization, and, and the general political temperature being driven to, to extremes. I'm not overly optimistic in the short term. I think uh, this will continue for some time. And I think as, as things like the economic impact of COVID become more manifest and Brexit. Uh, all of this is going to feed into um, a more charged political atmosphere than I think we're used to and, and you know, certainly more charged than, than we'd like it to be. Part of the problem here is the terminology adopted by President George W. Bush in the immediate aftermath of the 9-11 attacks. It's easy to see why he called it a war, with the smoke still billowing over New York and Washington, but it wasn't. And it allowed people to think that it could be won with conventional military resources, of which America had more, especially in 2001, than any country on earth. But a wave of polarization and violent radicalization is something different, not war, not solvable by armies or airstrikes. Let's go back to Trinidad, to see how this is playing out in even the most unlikely-seeming situations. Andy Knight is Professor of International Relations at the University of Alberta and has made a close study of the island's brush with globalised extremism. Terrorism, uh, terrorist organisations are, I call them learning organisations. They are able to adjust and learn as the environment changes. And I think we've moved now away from this Westphalian notion of the nation state as being somehow able to uh, protect the population, the territory, and the resources of individual countries uh, from attacks coming from outside. And we've seen this, in, especially since 9-11. What we've seen really is asymmetric power uh, rivalry between a non-state actor against a major state actor, a global hegemonic power. The thing is, this is really, as you put it, um, uh, Arthur, uh, a franchise in the sense that, uh, like McDonald's franchise, popping up all over the globe. And we can talk about uh, the links between the jihad in uh, Muslim countries and, say, Boko Haram in Nigeria, which I'm doing work on right now, um, or the links to uh, jihadist groups in Trinidad and Tobago, a small island state. Uh, that's known more for its carnival and its uh, laissez-faire attitude than its radical and extremist uh, positions. But here we are. So I guess, um, what do you think might be the lessons of the kind of Trinidad case study 
for for the wider world when we're looking at at the question of sort of jihadism? Well, I, I think there's perhaps two narratives here. One is one of the tragedies of Trinidad, uh, as well as many other Caribbean countries, is a legacy of colonialism, um, and the legacy of colonialism kind of bred that kind of situation where individuals wanted to strike back against the establishment, right? Target the Trinidadian government and those people who were pro-colonization. But these individuals who are feeling marginalized are become prime targets for uh, people who want to prey on them uh, using ideology, using religion, using these different forms to prey on them to become part of what, a sort of global jihadist movement uh, to attack the so-called enemy. So that's one thing. The second thing is there was el- this idea of an element of radicalization and that can form into uh, extremism that seemed to be present in Trinidad that you don't find in many other countries in the Caribbean. As you know, Trinidad is probably the only Caribbean island where there was a, a, military, a coup. In 1990, um, there was a group called Jamaat al-Muslimin that launched a, a coup, the very first ever coup in the Western Hemisphere uh, by an Islamic group. Um, and this, uh, this group took the prime minister and number of parliamentarians hostage for several days. And eventually the army gained control by managing to get Yassin Abu Bakr, who was the head of the, uh, this, this Jamaat, uh, to have him arrested. Uh, but, you know, this ideology hasn't gone away. Just recently, uh, I think to commemorate 9-11, Yassin Abu Bakr uh, spoke out and said that he was given Trinidad's government the final warning that something very radical will happen in the country. So there's still this kind of fear uh, that um, some sort of eruption of violence could happen. And, and as I understand it, there was at least one occasion when there was a credible... Uh, threat against Trinidad's carnival. As you said, it's a huge mm-hmm. carnival, yes. you know, loads of people in the street. From, if you take a very conservative Islamic perspective, you probably don't like what goes on at carnival. And so that has been, if I'm right, a genuine security threat. Yes, it really has. And in fact, it became to the, it came to the point where, you know, uh, Trinidad uh, carnival had to be cancelled, not just for because of the pandemic, but because of this um, very real threat to the population there and um so this is this is going to be a constant concern i think a network of opportunity committed actors with a history of violence and a list of grievances to match a toxic environment of oppression and discrimination. Perhaps then it's not so unlikely that Trinidad has experienced its own extremism story. And it doesn't end there. Remember what Asher Javid told us at the start, that up to 300 people from this little country had been in Syria with ISIS. Those that survive are mostly still there, in refugee camps, and the children have been raised in the toxic environment of holy war. Then think about the wider picture. There may be a hundred or more Trinidadians alive, maybe trying to get home, maybe still radicalised, but think of all the other nations who joined. Then think of the core fighters, the Iraqis and Syrians. Some have fled to refugee camps across the region and some were captured. 
What happened to them, to the movement? Shiraz Maher. The reality is 12,000 men, so I'm not talking about the women and children that people would have seen on the news in those big camps on Hull and Raj and elsewhere, but 12,000 men uh, associated with uh, Islamic State are currently detained and held by the Syrian Democratic Forces, that's basically the Kurds. And of that community, about 2,000 are estimated to be foreigners. Now, we've done this before. We did this uh, uh, in Iraq after 2003, where we arrested and detained a lot of these guys in a place called Camp Buka, down towards the Kuwaiti border. And they actually said that that was, um, and they've talked about it in their literature, saying, you know, that was a real opportunity for them because on the outside, they could never get together because they were worried about a drone strike wiping them out. So they didn't really have time to sit and plot a plan. But we, of course, gathered them all together in a safe space and put them together. And then, of course, in the end, we, we released them and they go on to found uh, Islamic State. And, and, of course, we all know what happens thereafter. So these guys are all sitting together in detention right now. And, and we don't really know what happens next. You know, if, if they were to re-enter the battlefield, if they were to re-emerge uh, in some capacity, then of course that presents a hugely problematic and dangerous scenario. The Syrian Kurds who control the northeast of that ravaged country proved the only force in the region that could take on Islamic State in the field. Their reward for their commitment and bravery was to be left with the unenviable task of running detention camps for thousands of Islamic State fighters and their families, most of whom have no connection to Syria. Unsurprisingly, for a group that is under constant military pressure from neighbouring Turkey, the Syrian Kurds are struggling to run secure, humane prisons. In fact, some of the Islamic State men have paid their way out of imprisonment. The fight against ISIS and violent extremists is not over, and our mission has not changed. The coalition's hard-won battlefield gains can only be secured by maintaining a vigilant offensive against a now largely dispersed and disaggregated ISIS that retains leaders, fighters, facilitators, resources, and the profane ideology that fuels their efforts. With most of the Islamic State fighters out of sight and mind of those of us in the West, we can pretend that the caliphate has been defeated and the problem has gone away. But the problem of radicalization is growing, aided by an increasingly online world in which, I may have mentioned previously, everything is connected and nothing happens in a vacuum. Our next episode will look at that online world is there a cyber war unfolding between states, criminal gangs and corporations? A war waged over the countless internet-enabled devices in all of our lives. The war in your living room. These vulnerabilities lead to real harms. Privacy is dying. We can be tracked and monitored better than ever before. Who might be after you? Why and how? We all keep tracking devices in our pockets. There are countries out there only very thinly veiling their ambitions and just disrupt our life. Cyber weapons. Nobody sees them. Nobody knows them. They are kept as great secrets. If there's a threat online, we miss. Our current way of life gets destroyed. destroyed. 
Doomsday Watch was written and presented by Arthur Snell and produced by Robin Lieburn, with assistant production from me, Jacob Archibald. Theme tune and original music is by Paul Hartnell. The group editor is Andrew Harrison. Doomsday Watch is a Podmasters production. <laughs>